Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. So glad to be with you again. Folks, we made it to February. Holy cow, we made it past January. Finally, I can't believe it took that long. That month was forever. As literally every meme I've seen in the last two weeks has said, it was a very, very long month. February, short month, always feels long. That's the way it goes. Whatever this warmth is we're having, this is fall, spring. Everyone knows it's going to get cold again. Something will surprise us this month. Speaking of surprises, well, we gaveled into a special session this Monday. And uh, for all intents and purposes, that special session is done. The Senate very publicly said they have no appetite for discussing tax cuts until the until the Board of Equalization meets on February 15th, I believe, to tell the legislature exactly how much money they have to spend this year, how much money they have to appropriate. So we'll see what happens there. I think you and I both know the governor called a special session largely for the headlines, right? So he can say he did it. He can say that the legislature wouldn't do it. And that next week on Monday, this coming Monday, February 5th, when this, the governor gives his uh, annual state of the state address, he can hit it one more time. He wants to provide tax relief to Oklahomans. That actual tax relief, of course, is only a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, just pennies, literally pennies per day. For most Oklahomans, it would average only about $3 a month, um, which is insignificant, right? None of us would notice $3 a month in our paychecks. That's ridiculous. No one's going to miss $34 a year. Who will miss it, though, of course, is the uh, the rich people, right, who who stand to gain a couple of thousand dollars a year. If you make you know upwards of uh, $500,000 a year, you're going to get several thousand dollars in tax benefit here. Ah, ah. I think we see where the tax relief is actually going. Anyway, as I said, the governor will give his State of the State address on Monday, and we will, of course, discuss it next week here on the program. We've got a good guest next week um, to talk about it with. We may even do a special episode. Who knows? We'll see how uh, energetic I'm feeling next week, uh, how how uh, hilarious, offensive, encouraging, whatever the State of the State might be. And of course, the actual governing that will be happening. I expect my inbox will be full of press releases all week from the legislature. Man, those folks really know how to send out a lot of press releases. Before we get there, though, before we get into the chaos, the hullabaloo of the legislative session, today, we have a very special guest in studio. My guest today is Reverend Dr. Shannon Fleck from the Oklahoma Faith Network. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you, Andy. I'm so excited you're here. You office down the hall, and I don't think we've ever had you on the program before. I know, and I'm only mildly offended by that. Well, good. Well, we'll try to remedy <laughs> that before you become medium offended. Okay. And um, maybe make this a regular occurrence. But I'm so glad you're here. Um, you and I have worked in similar circles for a number of years, and I'm sure that a number of our listeners already know you well, but for those who don't, let's start by talking about you. Uh, I, I introduced you with two two titles, Reverend and Doctor. Right. I'm certain there's a story with at least one of those <laughs> that's worth sharing. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, and, and I think we want to know like how how did you end up here? How did you come to this work? Because this is, I assume, probably not what you set out to do when you were in college. So weird, right? <laughs> like the the story is funny 
in that I'm a, I'm a native Oklahoman. I grew up in Guthrie, which is now becoming such a bigger town, sure. right? It's, yeah. it's grown. But when I grew up there, it was small, small town. And I graduated with my undergraduate degree in sociology and went home to Guthrie, America, and got a job as a juvenile probation officer, of oh. all things. Where did you go to college? I went to UCO in Edmond. Okay. Mm-hmm. So going home is like 15, 15 minutes north. 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went so far right. away. Uh, no, I was literally 15 minutes from home. But went back to Guthrie, and people are shocked to hear that that was my first job because, you know, that's not that's not necessarily a normal straight-out-of-college experience. Well, and they probably don't associate juvenile workers of any of criminal workers uh, with anyone who's female or like there's Correct. there's a preconceived notion there. Absolutely. Yes. And so people are shocked by that. But it really sh- just shaped my entire life in the best of ways because I went into that job as a 22 year old who had grown up in this tiny town essentially in a bubble. And I credit my my mother with that. She obviously raised me with great values and awareness to the point, though, that I didn't know there was pain, hurt, abuse, mm-hmm. and terrible things in the world. So coming into that job, it blew my mind that such things existed. Right. And it lit this fire within me that, okay, so whatever I do for the rest of my life, I cannot ignore pain, hurt, and unrest in this world. I don't know what that will look like. And it took on some iterations, Andy. Sure. I applied to go into the Peace Corps and was accepted to go to the Peace Corps. And at the last minute was like, you know, I just don't know if going to Thailand for two years is is the gig. I don't know if that's it. <laughs> and I like got way in the process. Yeah. And, um, and that's why there's a process too, that's, right? Yes. To give, to give young adults the chance to really think through this decision. Correct. Correct. And I'm grateful that I, I was thinking outside of the box, but I also know now reflectively that that was the correct decision not to do that. And then it became, I'm going to go get a master's of social work degree. Mm -hmm. And I was accepted and was going to start at OU, was very excited. That was the route. Well, while I was doing juvenile probation, I was also volunteering as a youth minister at my home congregation in Guthrie. Mm -hmm. And did that just for free until they hired someone. Well, I did that for two years for free. They never hired anybody. Um, But they loved you. They did. And I loved them. And the associate minister at the time was the first female minister I'd ever seen in my life. Can I ask what denomination? Disciples of Christ. Okay. So if you see the red cup... On, on signs affiliated with Christian churches. That's us. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. The Red Chalice. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I was picturing the red cup like the coffee shop over on Classen, which is a coffee mug that's red, not the chalice. This makes more sense. I have seen that. I would fully claim the red cup also, though, <laughs> as, a, as a denominational We've got experience. Christ and vegan biscuits. Or that's whatever. right. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. right on. So, Disciples of Christ, lifelong. And she was the first female I had seen. 
And really, I didn't realize until then that until you see something, you don't realize that it's possible. Oh, sure. So I grew up not thinking that ministry was ever right in the field of possibility for me as a woman. And for a lot of denominations, even in the Christian church, it's not. Correct. Like that's a relatively new uh, shift, I think, for a lot of de- a lot of denominations. It's very slow. The denominations who have embraced it have done so very well. But even in more conservative parts of the country, like Oklahoma, there's still a hesitancy in denominations to hire women, Mm -hmm. even within the denominations that ordain women. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Oh, that's interesting. So there's denominations that might ordain women, but not ever actually hire them. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. We'll let you get so close and not come in the de- room. Come in the room. That's right. right. And if you talk to women in seminary, that's a common experience. Hmm. So the associate pastor said to me, "Have you ever considered seminary?" And I laughed at her because who would ever think yeah. about intentionally going into ministry like that? And she gave me a packet of information from Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa. And I threw it in my back seat to be forgotten in the pile of whatever existed in my back seat at the age of 24. (laughs) And I, I forgot about it, but it planted a seed in me. And that seed did not go away. If anything, it got so big, I couldn't ignore it. And I finally let her take me up to Tulsa for a visit at the seminary. And I sat in on a class and just knew that was it. That was the gig. I had no idea what my life would look like. I had no idea what kind of job that would get me in the future. I knew it was going to be a hard road. But boy, did I know that that was, that was my educational experience. How fascinating. I re- it's different, but I remember when I was in high school preparing to go to college and I came for like a, you know, high school college days thing weekend and you had to sit in on a class. And I remember sitting there and like seeing all these, you know, college students come in and their hoodies and they were coming in two minutes late or five minutes late and just sitting down and it just felt so grown up. And I, mm. grad school is kind of the same thing, just like another layer higher where something about it even if you hate going to class, suddenly seeing this other class feels exciting. Absolutely. It was, it was emotional. It mm. was an emotional experience. And that was in like July. Okay. So I was scheduled to start the MSW program at OU a month later. Oh. So within a month, I withdrew from OU. They thought I had lost my mind, mm-hmm. literally. And I had applied, been accepted, and enrolled at Phillips Seminary. It was that quick. Only only in a seminary can you make a decision that quickly and still get in to start the semester. Correct. <laughs> they, I mean, they were ready, ready to have me. And it, it was an 89-credit-hour master's degree. I think wow. a lot of people don't realize that. A master's of divinity degree is basically equivalent with attending law school. Right. Except we only get a master's out of it. Right. It's called a master's of divinity. And that is for my denomination, along with a lot of mainline Christian denominations, you have to have a master's of divinity to be considered for ordination. However, 
just getting the Masters of Divinity doesn't guarantee ordination. They are two separate processes. Sure. It's like having to pass boards after medical school or something. Exactly. And just for reference, like my master's in counseling is a 60-hour program. You said that was an 89-hour program? So 50% longer than my master's in counseling. And my MBA, I think, was a 48-hour program. So almost twice as long as that, right? Correct. Yeah. It's a big program, and a lot of people are surprised by that. And so just putting that out there, that it's not a small hoop to jump through. It's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. And if you do it full-time and nothing else, you can get it done in three years, like law school. Right. That's full-time, cranking it out. I had bills to pay. So I worked, you know, three-quarter time as a youth pastor while I went to seminary. So it took me four years. Presumably driving from Guthrie to Tulsa for yes. classes? Yes. So I lived in Guthrie. I would drive to Tulsa. Oh, my gosh. The days were just, I don't know how I did it. I would wake up at 5 mm-hmm. to be on the road by 6, to be in class by 8 a.m. And then I'd take three, three-hour-long classes throughout the day at the seminary, I'd mm-hmm. get done at 9 p.m., drive home, get home around 11 p.m., and that was the day. Right, go straight to bed. And straight then, to bed. Yeah. I don't know how I survived that. Oh, to be young again. Oh, to be young, <laughs> right? So I graduated with my MDiv in May of 2011 and was ordained immediately. I was lucky enough that my denomination granted me that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I've been ordained for a minute now. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So that's the reverend in my title. Okay. <laughs> I forgot there's another chapter to this there, already. You know, the chapters. So the, it sounds like the academic side didn't go away entirely. It did not. Um, I never, I didn't necessarily think I would go on for the doctorate, but what I and a lot of women in ministry experience is that Often we need a little bit extra to be taken seriously. Hmm. And that's just part of the part of the gig. I, I find that in um, other fields as well. I can think of nursing in particular. I know a hmm. lot of folks who were, you know, went to graduate school to become a nurse practitioner mm-hmm. and then decided to do their um, doctorate of nursing as well because they're like, oh, well, it's only a couple more years. And in a profession where they are already having to kind of fight for elbow room with PAs and physicians, they've needed or felt like they needed uh, something else to, to boost that up. It absolutely felt like that, especially once I came into this role. I really felt like I needed to, to prove myself academically as mm-hmm. well. This role with the Faith Network? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. so so there was a gap between yes. seminary and going back for that. Is it a doctorate in divin- divinity? Ministry. It's in a ministry. doctor okay. of ministry. Mm-hmm. I guess every seminary probably has their own thing there. They do, and there's different there's different higher sure. level. There's different programs. So in 2018, the fall of 2018, I began my doctor of ministry program at Emory University in Atlanta. And it was a hybrid program. And I would have to go in person twice a year mm-hmm. for about you know a week. And then we would have online class. So we were already using Zoom pre-pandemic. Before it was cool, yeah. Yeah. And then in the middle of my doctoral program, COVID hit. Oh. 
And that really shaped the tail end of my doctoral program in an interesting way because we had to, in real time, learn and navigate how to do ministry in a whole new world. Right. And we were doing it professionally in this program, in our settings. And um, in addition to that, I had a first grader at home. Right. And then, who, who also is having to learn virtually. Yeah. yeah. And she couldn't read. Right. So she can't do school on her own while I work. It was, yeah. it was intense there for a minute. But exactly 10 years after I graduated with my MDiv, I graduated with my Doctor of Ministry. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So in May of 2021, I became Reverend Dr. Shannon Fleck. And yeah, I found my way to what is now the Oklahoma Faith Network by way of being an associate minister in Enid, Oklahoma for a couple of years. Okay. So kind of just to make sure that the timeline is straight in in my head. Yep. So you got your MDiv, Mm -hmm. you were presumably after you graduated, I assume got another job at some point Mm -hmm. um, that maybe perhaps actually paid beyond the youth ministry work you were doing as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, was that job in Enid then? No, I got to Enid in 2015. Okay. At the time, I was married to a man who is active duty Air Force. Okay. So that took me to Abilene, Texas mm-hmm. for a few years, Little Rock, Arkansas for a few years, and then we ended up in Enid. And I was able to get a job at a church in Enid because people in Oklahoma knew me. So it was easier. Right. Then trying to prove myself in these new states. And after I did that for a couple of years, I had a big life transition and um, no longer married. And an opportunity came up with this organization that was called at the time the Oklahoma Conference of Churches. Yeah. So let's can you tell us a little bit about the organization and its origin and how it got started? Absolutely. The Oklahoma Conference of Churches was founded in 1972 to be an ecumenical Christian organization. The goal was to create and implement dialogue across denominations, but strictly only Christian. That's Mm -hmm. what the word ecumenical means. It's Mm -hmm. a Christian word for Presbyterians working with Methodists and disciples, like we're cross-talking, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a big movement at the time. Trying to bring together a, what is honestly like a pretty disparate Mm -hmm. uh, faith, right? The Christian faith is very spread out. Very. And is the, was the work of the um, Conference of Churches just with like Protestant leaning um, uh, churches or did it like include Catholics and Orthodox and kind of all the other groups? Yes. The uh, Catholic diocese was involved from the beginning, and there was, I think, one Orthodox denomination that was a part of it at one time. I came on board as the director of programs, essentially program development strategy, in 2017. So I did not come on in the role I'm in now. I came in in a different role, and my predecessor retired like <laughs> nine months in. And I I don't know what made me like have the audacity, but I applied, and they were like, go for it. Yeah. And I said, okay, like here we go. So I became the executive director of what was then the Oklahoma Conference of Churches in 2018. 
That's so interesting. I I had no idea about the timeline. I don't remember when you and I first met, but this all makes sense because, you know, Let's Fix This started in um, the spring of 2016. Mm. And certainly, I think after the 2016 election, there was a lot of groups around the country that sprang up kind of in the wake of, of that election. Um, we were ahead of that. It was not tied to the election, just to be, <laughs> just to be clear. Right. But there's a lot of people that I know, right, that we all kind of got thrust into this arena around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of issues in our state that were coming up that I think brought people together. 2018 was the teacher walkout too, right? Or was that 2019? I feel like that was the next year. It all runs oh, together. Oh, actually, maybe it was, it was 2018. 2018. It was. Yes, because I I was the acting executive director. That's right. Didn't quite have the gig just yet, That's but- right. Yes, I remember it being was. at the Capitol. Correct. On there was like on I don't know if it was Wednesday of that week of the walkout week, where in the morning there was like a like a big prayer service kind of on the in the fourth floor rotunda where mm-hmm. you had faith leaders. I remember you. I was there being there. I was there with my son because he obviously didn't have school. Right. And my um, my son's aunt is a minister um, who I think you know. And so she was there with him. And I was like, oh, this is a great timing that we're all here. And that was probably, if I was going to trace it back, that might have been the first time that you and I met, but we kind of knew of each other because of some overlap in the work. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. In the before times. anything In the, in the before. Anything before 2020 <laughs> is real blurry. It's like a different world. It is. Completely different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... At that point, OCC had already been engaging in more interfaith work Mm -hmm. for about 10 years and was having membership from a variety of faith traditions, not just Christian anymore. And as I was coming into the leadership, I knew pretty early on that a rebrand was probably in order. Mm, Because of that. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the 1972 ecumenical mission was good. Um, We expanded that mission over time very naturally, but our name was still reflecting that old functionality. Mm -hmm. So in 2022, we made the announcement that we were changing our name to the Oklahoma Faith Network. And we have been living into this new Mm rebrand of what our mission really is, which is to connect, motivate, and empower communities of faith in Oklahoma. And that's communities of all faiths, yeah. not just Christian. And so essentially the Oklahoma Faith Network is a, I'll say a membership organization of church bodies of some kind or a representative of, of different faith traditions, as you said. Do you have like um, any idea of like the number of participating churches or denominations or however you categorize that? Sure. Uh, 15 Christian denominations. And I would put maybe the the local congregations within those umbrellas at mm-hmm. about 1,500. Sure. Yeah. Those Each of those denominations represent a lot. A ton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then we also have engaging relationships with multi-faith, you know, bodies and interfaith engagement and more and more secular organizations mm. are becoming members and engaged of the work because they are seeing the movements of faith-based narratives that are being put out in the public sphere. They want to be engaged in a voice that's saying something different 
Hmm. And so, and you, when you said faith-based, you gave air quotes to me here in the studio. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, um, you tell me more about that. You said faith-based um, with air quotes to imply that there are, I guess, maybe um, people in the in the public realm that are using faith as a guise for yep. something else. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, faith-based is is an interesting term because it kind of lumps in a lot and not just local congregations, which is what most people think of. Right. People people think of that we only work with a local church, but the truth is we work with secular organizations to help them work with faith communities. Right. We help faith communities connect with trauma-informed trainings, and we're really trying to uplift and empower the faith movement or people that are utilizing faith as a tool in a toolbox, Right. if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, we, just as a personal example, right, Let's Fix This is a, quote, secular organization because we are not faith-based. And I think, to your point, there's a lot of, we'll say, faith-flavored organizations, but they're not based. That's a different... It's the difference between like a chicken soup or like a chicken scented candle or something that's like <laughs> Ew. wafted around. That does sound disgusting. Maybe that's not a bad, I don't know. That might be someone's flavor though. Right. So I'm right. not going to diss that. But um, a, a separate organization that uh, that I work with nationally is um, makes me think about this. It's the They're called the um, Mormon Women for Ethical Government. Mm-hmm. And so they're a national organization. They've got chapters in... I think 49 of the 50 states that are pretty active or members in 49 of the states and chapters in a bunch of them. And they share a, a commonality there that it's primarily Mormon women, but they do a lot of work with good government, um, like pro-democracy, bridge-building communities. And they're really, they are bringing their network into that work and they are bringing that work to their network, right? So exactly. like when I work with them, we talk about electoral and democracy reform and maybe they are curious about how can we strengthen democracy? They have volunteers that want to get involved who need to know more about it. And we want to educate them and to provide the opportunity for them to get involved because on some level, like we're all in this together. Like we may not, even if we don't share the faith piece, like I'm not a Mormon nor a woman, but we all care about democracy together. Yeah. And we can find ways to work together in the same way that there are black-led organizations or Latino-led organizations or LGBTQ-led organizations. Having a faith-led organization is an important part of that pie. Absolutely. And that's that's the way to think of it is it's a pie. We all have our sectors, but we all form the pie. And really, when we isolate ourselves from one another, we're not doing justice to the work that can be done. Mm. Fascinating. Um, so today, Oklahoma Faith Network, I, I know you have a few employees here and um, because we office in the same building, so I get to talk to you guys. Um, what kind of programming do you provide or offer right now? Oh, gosh. Oh, well, in 2020, we started a campaign called No Hate in the Heartland, Mm -hmm. and that's something that's near and dear to me. It's centered around anti-racism, anti-discrimination work, and absolutely something that 
the faith sector needs to be engaged in. So we made that a more active part of our platform in 2020. So we do a lot of panel discussions, information sessions, you know, all kinds of advocacy work around this mission of no hate in the heartland. In addition to that, we have beautiful partnerships that allow us to do trauma-informed work Mm -hmm. within communities. So we do work around addiction prevention, specifically around the opioid epidemic and getting congregations and faith-based communities to engage in that conversation, really trying to strip away shame is really at the core of that work because Addiction is something people live with in the shadows, and people in pews of congregations, no matter the faith tradition, are struggling with addiction, and we want to empower faith leaders to be engaged in that dialogue, to strip that shame away from folks so that healing can really take place. And, you know, we really just want to bring that out of the shadows and care for people in addition, we we work with a program called Strengthening Families that we partner with local congregations and we train local leaders to do this program in their local setting with their local community. And we give them funding to do that. We pay them for their time to lead that. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful programs that we've ever seen. We just had a graduation ceremony two nights ago, graduated 12 families in Tulsa. Beautiful, beautiful. I cry every time. <laughs> Additionally, we are, are engaging in work in suicide prevention now. Oh, you guys recently did a mental health first aid training we for did. your staff too, right? Yeah. yeah, we did mental health first aid here in the office. Great day. Um, we're doing a lot of a variety of trainings right now so that we can then offer them uh, statewide in faith communities. So the first step of that is we need to get trained. We need to know what we're doing. And so we're learning a lot. We're experiencing a lot of different trainings, models, curriculums to really bring that and experience it. What we did in the fall is we launched a survey because what you'll learn in doing faith-based work, if ever you're interested, is that there's not a lot of data when it comes to faith-based work in general. So we launched a survey in the fall to try and learn and get a a more comprehensive picture of what the faith relationship is with suicide and suicide prevention. What are the conversations like? What do you believe about suicide from your faith tradition and why? What kind of training have you had or not had? And what we are seeing in those results is that a vast majority of our people of faith in Oklahoma know someone who has died by suicide, know about suicide, but have never had access yeah. to training yeah. with regards to it. Yeah, woefully inequipped to know how to respond. Absolutely. So we we are on the front end of really starting to engage that work. That's so fascinating. I'm so grateful that... Uh, Oklahoma Faith Network exists for many reasons, but those in particular, two of the things you just mentioned, addictions and then suicide, or um, as someone you know with a background in the mental health field is um, certainly near and dear to my heart in those ways. And as someone who like has friends and family who suffer um, from those things. And I remember when I was in middle school, 
um, my, you know, I, you know this, but I went to school to be a minister as well. I do know that. Yeah, but I, after a few months, I was like, this is not the <laughs> path for me. And, uh, but I remember in middle school talking to our pastor, you know, our, we are a small church, we were friends um, with their family, plus he's the pastor. I guess it's his job to chat. Anyway, I it don't is. know how it came up, but he, his wife made a comment that she had found some kind of drugs in his like sock drawer. And she was like, what's this? And he was like, oh, I got it from a you know parishioner or right, someone in the church. And he said, I get more good drugs in this job because, and I was, I was probably like 14 and like, what? And he said, you know, people will come to his office to talk to him like, pastor, I'm struggling with this drug. Like I need you to take it and would just give them the drugs. And he didn't know what to do with them. Right. And this is in the mid nineties. And so he just like would put them in his desk drawer or in his pocket and take it home. It happened at weird times. Some of it, he just put it in his sock drawer to get rid of it when he was like changing clothes or something. And before he went to the hospital to minister mm-hmm. to someone there. And I was just thinking like, what a bizarre job where you think you're going to be a, a, you know, a clergy because you're going to preach on Sundays and tell people about, you know, God or salvation or whatever. And you end up like having to pocket an eight ball of Coke because someone yeah. catches you in the parking lot or whatever. That's that right. was not part of the, that's like other duties as needed or whatever on the job description. We classify that as things they don't teach you in seminary. Right, right. And there's a whole heap of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I think, you know, suicide and any kind of mental health thing comes along with that where yes. I know a lot of pastors who would do premarital counseling and did great as well on the presumption that like the couple will come in, we'll read this book and kumbaya, they're going to get married, they're in love. But the moment that they hit Rocky Waters, it's, you know, it's a real big issue. And when I was, um, when I had my private practice of counseling, I can't, I did mostly couples and I had a lot of couples who came to me referred by their minister who's, who thankfully said, this is out of my depth. Thankfully. Yeah. There's, I'm, there's a lot that do not think, oh, I got this. Yeah. But there are more resources. There's bigger answers than just like pray about it or, you know, whatever. Yes. And getting faith communities trained not just like not just aware of but actually trained and skill building skills in how to respond to people's needs in these areas exactly is very important like we would ensure that your pastor had disposal bags in his office right not, so that don't just flush it in the toilet yeah, please or. don't take that eight <laughs> ball to your sock drawer right. in your home right. like so that's that's exactly the kind of work And, you know, pastors, we don't learn this stuff. Seminary does not hand us mental health training. It does not hand us how to deal with addiction. It doesn't give us those things. But what we find is that our faith leaders are on the front end of so much human care in our communities. And we have to be in the in the work of instilling skill sets that we were not trained to have formally. Yeah, and and uh, I love the phrase human care. First of all, and and if I think there's a lot of pressure on members of the clergy, right? An expectation that they do have all the answers, all of the answers. And so to to admit that you don't have the answers or the knowledge of some things is, I think, difficult for a lot of people. Um, and so having a trusted resource that is from the faith community, like it's you're learning from someone you already feel safe with because of who you are, who the organization is, 
is like one degree closer than having to go out and find that resource somewhere else, right? Correct. Like even if you might know that you can go get a suicide prevention training from a community mental health center or the Department of Mental Health or something, you might not because like that's far away and like scary or just, it's just like one more burden. But to have a faith-based organization come and say, hey, we're offering this training. We're one of you. Come be with us. Right. Makes it more accessible. Sure. And we can include your theological practice in the dialogue. Sure. Because we speak that language. Right. Right. Which is helpful. I think so. So um, OFN also engages in some advocacy, which you mentioned. And as we all know, the uh, second regular session of the 59th (laughs) legislature starts next week, right? It starts (laughs) on Monday. Um, And I am certain that there are some bills um, that I have seen filed. Uh, Some have been in the news. Some I've just seen as I'm perusing uh, the catalog. Uh, what, What are you watching, Shannon? Are there certain things that you guys have on your radar? Absolutely. There's uh, there's a lot this year, actually. We normally see a lot of, I would say, <laughs> preaching from the House floor. You well, know, there's we, a number of ministers who serve in the state legislature. You know, and <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> I would love to know more about these ministers that are in our legislature, uh, specifically around their theological education, because some of some of what's said is... Wow. Um, but well, I, I would suspect, Shannon, that the <laughs> rigor that you went through with your studies might not be the same for everyone out there. Listen, let me tell a lot of people don't know this or understand this, but ordination is not unilateral. Right. You can go online and be ordained in an hour. I, I did that. I am, <laughs> I am one of those. I did it. I, so I could officiate a wedding. Reverend Andy Moore, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Yeah. From the Holy Church of the Internet or whatever. That's it is. right. Well, yeah. guess what? Andy Moore, Reverend Andy Moore. Um, according to a bill being introduced this session, you could get a job in place of a school counselor in a local public school. <laughs> this offends me as a counselor. <laughs> it should. <laughs> Not as a member of the clergy. It should. But that's um, that's wild. So, so it's a legislation that, so, well, first of all, we don't have enough school counselors to go around, right? Like I have a Understood. A couple of good friends that are school counselors, and they are spread thin Absolutely. amongst multiple schools. So if they get like one day at each school or half a day at each school during the week and have to just rotate around, mm-hmm. which is if you're only at a school for four hours once a week, there's a whole lot of kids not being served. Absolutely. Yes. And it's so, a problem. So we know there's a need. There is a need. And this bill seeks to fill that need, but not with counselors, but with members of the clergy. Correct. And it's not just one bill. There's actually four bills. Oh, of course. Well, there are four if, versions. If one's good, Shannon, fours. Let's better. let's up the ante. Let's write it four times different ways. So, are they, are, are these bills, like, is it open to members of any faith tradition? I'm, I assume not. The, the one I have read is from Shane Jett, and the language is very vague, as it tends to be, and essentially says a minister with authorization in their, tr- their church, their tradition. So the internet church counts. I, I mean, it doesn't say it doesn't. Universal Life Church or whatever it was. Yeah. That I, okay. So the first question there is, Okay, all ordination is not created equal. Right. Authorization from a faith body is not 
equal. It's not unilateral. You're not necessarily going to get someone who went to seminary for four years. And let me also just reiterate what I just said a minute ago. We didn't get mental health right. education. We didn't get any of that. So this bill resembles one that we saw in Texas that seeks to allow chaplains mm -hmm. to come into our public school systems in the place of school counselors. And while I fully understand that we are struggling with school counselors, the alarming nature of, you know, you can get ordained on the internet. Some denominations, all you really need to do is express your call to ministry and you are granted ordination. Oh, right. So without a formal education, God told me to be a minister. Correct. Sure. So, I mean, it's not, not to be simplistic about this, but we know that we need the thing that our schools need, right? Are more trained, certified teachers and more school counselors. Mm -hmm. And what it seems like we're filling those needs with are police officers and ill-trained ministers. Right. And as you said, even a well-trained minister might not be a well-trained counselor. Well, let me different just skill set. say that I have a master's and a doctorate and I am not at all qualified to do that job. I will say that publicly all day long. I am not qualified to be a school counselor at all. Right. And to think that there are religious leaders who will go into our public schools without a religious agenda is... Uh, is ignoring a very big red flag. Right. And th this is about public schools, right? Like Correct. If, I assume a Catholic school might have a sure. some kind of faith element, right? Makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. But this is not – in the same way, I would imagine most churches would not want a counselor to come in and fill the role of a pastor without some kind of training. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, I'm like I'm no heart surgeon, but in a pinch <laughs> – I could be emergency certified. No, that's not that's okay. That's not the way that works. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's one that's really alarming. Actually, that's four that's really alarming. And I have a lot of concerns, as would I think a lot of Oklahomans sure. have concerns about that one, as we should. Mm -hmm. It's a real problem that needs a solution. This isn't it. Right. This is not the solution. All right. So ministers instead of counselors, that's Correct. one concern. Uh, we are seeing again, we want the Ten Commandments posted in every classroom. Uh, hasn't that, isn't that settled law? I feel like it should be settled law, Andy. Didn't we like have the Ten Commandments on the Capitol grounds that had to get removed? And they're, <laughs> they're bringing that one up again, by the way. I saw that. That one's coming back. They, they want to put that back up. As a historical document. Uh-huh. Historical document. Yeah. Which, yeah, which has already been we've already fought this in yeah. court the state spent a lot of money to defend it they lost by the state supreme court mm -hmm. that same monument is now down the street right at a mm -hmm. private organization's property that was a that was when i first started paying attention to oklahoma politics and i remember the the video the live feed of them removing this thing mm -hmm. under the it was at night and there was like a helicopter yes. filming it <laughs> yes awkward shadows or <laughs> of, it was real it just felt comical and i think this I, we're gonna get into this i know but like the separation of church and state mm. mm -hmm. is like feels narrower and narrower or that people are trying to push them 
closer on, together on purpose. This is a yeah. this is a concerted effort to insert religion into public spaces. It's intentional. This this um, eroding of the separation of church and state is a very intentional act. We're seeing it across the country. It's not just Oklahoma. However, Oklahoma's pushing it super hard because we've got the the lawmakers willing to do it. Yeah. And we're in a big election year. So right. right. We always know there's going to be an inordinate number of we'll say outlandish bills that have maybe a low chance of passage, but not zero. Not zero. And these tend to be the stories that catch the eye of not just local media, who by and large know better, but national media, who I think in some ways it does like confirms outsiders' beliefs about Oklahoma, which is... There's a lot of opinions that are made about Oklahoma based on some of this... A few news stories, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's unfortunate. right. Right. The um, Jeff Foxworthy used to have a bit about Southerners on TV and like the Southern accent is what he was talking about and <laughs> yeah. like how we can't keep the the most offensive among us off the TV like when there's a tornado or whatever. <laughs> and it was always like a caricature of someone from the South and I was like, oh, that's what happens to us too. It Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Could, could we talk about white supremacy for a little bit? Please. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a topic that anyone likes to bring up, but I think we've kind of circled around it here that there is an intersection that is not, I think we used to think it kind of existed and out there, but it was not as prevalent as mm-hmm. we now know it is, right? That this comes up time and time again, particularly around public education, yes, but also just in how government functions, right? And this separation of church and state is a good kind of uh, a, a flashpoint where this comes up that there's there are those among us mm-hmm. in society who strongly believe that the Christian church is the only correctness the only like <laughs> right thing right that is the only thing that's true or good or morally fine or whatever right and that it should be the the overarching moral code for all Americans right period period End of sentence. Right. Um, something that's really important to keep in mind, and I think specifically the the country's attention got grabbed when Roe v. Wade was overturned mm. because the anti-choice movement was the the first brainchild iteration of a very intentional Christian nationalist platform. And... The Christian nationalist movement is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It is very important not to separate those. And one of the core beliefs of Christian nationalism is centered in this notion called the doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery says, and you'll when you hear it out of my mouth, you're going to hear it now all the time. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that America was gifted by God. God gave America to the colonists from Europe. Right. It's a gift. This land was a gift from the holy just for us. Now, who does that narrative not work for? Right. Literally everybody else. Literally everybody else. <laughs> Particularly Native Americans who were already here. Hello. Right. Yeah. Native Americans, you know, the uh, the 
enslaved persons <laughs> that we brought here right. against their will. Right. All of the populations, the people who have been discriminated against, hated, ostracized, belittled, you know, killed right. over over the millennia. Right. Like there is no nostalgia for anyone that isn't white. Right. Right. And I think that's something that people have to remember is this nostalgia for an old America only exists for white people. Well, and so I um, have been reading a book called Democracy Awakening, Democracy Awakens Mm -hmm. by Heather Cox Richardson, who um, some listeners may know she's been doing like a weekly newsletter and I think some kind of webcast thing for several years now about really the history of American democracy and this book really starts the first couple of chapters with this history of going back to trace white nationalism, right? So and those, I feel like whenever we say the word white, then some people tune out because they're like, oh, it's like race baiting or they're talking about it. Okay, well, let's just talk about nationalism, right? This, right. this American exceptionalism, this idea mm-hmm. that America is somehow better, mm-hmm. the best, gifted, above mm-hmm. You know, set God apart. bless America. Right. That it's something about it that makes us better than every other country. Correct. And I grew up being fed that too. I mean, just from society, right? Yeah. Songs like the one you just mentioned. Absolutely. And everything else. But when you start going back into history and like there's a very, very direct and obvious like line from, well, certainly from like slavery like pre-civil war america right that led to the civil war yes the south lost yeah slavery was abolished and they just they just kept at it like they kept working at it and working at it and you get up into like the 30s and 40s and the same group right just kept trying to ostracize the others and really the book is is drawn a line not just about nationalism but about like autocracy to fascism to this idea that like it's us and them. We are right. They are wrong. We are good. They are bad. Black and white, mm-hmm. um, or white and black. And the way I'm telling the story, right? That like right. it just draws this line all the way through. And now we here we are in the 2020s, and it's still happening. Yeah, and add to that narrative Christianity yes. because you layer Christianity into that, and it becomes. Christians are right, true, and correct. This belief system is the only way. And it's forgotten that Christianity is broad, and not all Christians are in this camp. But the the Christianity that I'm speaking of is very much based in this fear, control, and power mindset. And this is not new. When you look at Christian history across the the span of documented history, it is a, you know, a lot of people won't like this, but it's honest. It was created literally by committees of men. Yeah. Committees of men put the Bible together. <laughs> the Council of Nicaea was not inclusive. No, it was men. <laughs> right. It was a group of men who took a group of writings from history and literally decided whether or not they were going to be in this book right. that became the Bible. I remember when I was in college, this is probably why when I decided to leave that path was <laughs> when I like realized, oh, they just pick these books? Because you kind of grow up them. assuming that like God put them on tablets and we just developed the printing press and wrote them. But no, no, they had 
a lot more writings. And they're like, not these, only these. And we had to buy, you know, a copy of the Bible that included the Apocrypha, which is like a bunch of books that they mm-hmm. left out of the Bible, but you could still buy it with them in there. Mm-hmm. And it like changed the whole thing. And but I was even like, that's not all of the books no, right? that were up <laughs> so, for grabs. I was like, this is all bananas. Right. Yeah. So look at that and think about that. But a lot of the control pressure comes from the idea that these writings are the literal, true, handwritten words of God. And and when that is the belief system, it's really hard to question, engage, and evolve. And the Bible itself is one of the most self-contradictory texts that exists because it was written by different authors with different agendas and different levels of education and different cultures. So here we are today in modern society trying to post Ten Commandments in public classrooms without ever really fully understanding the cultural context, history, and reason that was even written. Right. Because in the mindset of of this particular belief system is that it's inerrant. It's not to be questioned or judged. Right. Right. Yes. The Ten Commandments, when written thousands of years ago, right, were very relevant to the Jews at the time as they were, you know, like... Yeah, it was to their culture and to their society, and um, and it is very, very, very different now. And isn't it funny? It's so funny to me that the focus is the Ten Commandments and not the Beatitudes. Right. Oh yeah. Wouldn't it be? That's a, okay. This is a funny idea, right? Just for a thought exercise of like, what if they said, "We want to, we want to post." Blessed are the poor. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> The, yeah. All of the Beatitudes in the classroom. Yeah. They shall inherit the earth. That's not cool. That doesn't track with power and control. Right. That's love and acceptance. And that is scary. Right. Because you can't control love and acceptance. Love and acceptance is nine times harder than fear. Right. And anger. Right. Because the Ten Commandments are, and this is, I'm not trying to comment no, on like the no, no, no. faith uh, histories themselves, but just as like, the honestly just the grammatical content right like the ten commandments are written in the imperative right where they are instructions mm-hmm. um honor thy father or thy mother right mm-hmm. like it's telling you what to do whereas the beatitudes are like statements of value correct in some way correct and very universal value yeah so And it's not even about the context of the scripture. It's about the mindset of those who are wielding it. Mm. That's the point I'm making Mm -hmm. is regardless of what scripture, the words say, it's how those in power today are utilizing those words towards an agenda. That's the part. Right. That is the part that is the conversation. Right. Because there's a reason that they're doing this. Correct. Correct. And, you know, throughout history, religion has been weaponized, you know, multiple times, wars, inquisitions, beheadings, you know, name it. And so when you think about the history of the United States, to do so accurately would be to think of our founding fathers as not that far removed from, say, Spanish inquisitions. Right. They had very real memories of the religious persecution of their ancestors over in Europe. So 
of course they put in the First Amendment that there will be no establishment of a national religion. And now we have people saying, oh, well, the separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. Okay, semantics. Right. The The First Amendment has the establishment clause within its words that specifically says there will be no national religion. Well, and it's also not in the Constitution because that is the essence of the Declaration of Independence, yep. right? A, an enormous reason that the American colonists wanted to separate from England was because they did not like the establishment of a, I mean, the Church of England was that's a whole other history that we can go it, into of like is. why it was established, <laughs> right? Um, and that's a fun one. That is a, that's a fun <laughs> one. That's a different podcast. Yeah, um, but that America saw what had happened over that's there and right. said, we don't want that. We don't want a king. We don't want a king who creates his own church. Yep. We don't want anyone to create like a church that we all have to follow. We want to do our own thing. We want in, freedom. Individually, right. We want freedom. And isn't that amazing because... Freedom of religion is now being flipped on its head. Um, We are seeing a bill from Julie Daniels coming to session this session called the Freedom of Religious Expression Act. And within that bill, the words Judeo-Christian are used Mm. multiple times. Mm -hmm. So is it really freedom of religion? Because you're only talking about Judeo-Christian and that's not freedom. That's one religion. Yeah, I think there is this like overarching narrative the last, I'm sure it's always been there, but especially the last few years that somehow the Christian faith is under attack. And I remember even kind of feeling this sentiment when I was in school, right? Mm-hmm. That like if the school didn't officially sanction and like host, see you at the poll when kids would gather before school to pray on the flagpole, that like you were... F- the the First Amendment allows you to do that if you want. You can get the flagpole every day and pray. Every day. With all your friends or yep. whoever you want. But the school cannot mandate that you do that. Yeah. Because that the school as a government entity would be mandating that and that would be forcing you to practice a religion that you may not adhere to. But you are still free to do so. There's some idea that like if the school doesn't say you have to, then they're saying you can't. And that is a false equivalency. Completely. Like not requiring prayer is not the same as banning prayer. Exactly. Exactly. But that whole notion you just mentioned, this fear, this Christianity is under attack, Christians are being persecuted. That is that fear and anger tactic that is so motivating Because if we convince Christians that they are being discriminated against, not being tolerated, whatever, the anger and fear is going to motivate people towards action. Right. And when you tap into that, you can move stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fear and outrage are- Fear and outrage. Powerful motivators. Absolutely. And to be clear, in some pockets of the world, Christians are being persecuted. To be clear, yes. And in some pockets of the world- Muslims are being persecuted yep. and Jews are being persecuted and yes. like, and, and Hindus and like, every, you know, all, everything. all of it. And what I think we should want as a country and what we should fight for as individuals and as a state, as a country is for the freedom for all people to practice their religion however they want to. If you ain't hurt anybody, knock yourself out. 
it's important to remember that the freedom of religion is the freedom to practice your religion, but it's also the freedom from religion. Right. And that's the part that gets just kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. It's like you have the right to practice whatever you want right up to the point that it affects my right to live and practice as I want. And the minute your belief system is put on to me, then that's where that's where the freedom ends. And what we see happening now with this nationalist culture and Christianity is that bleeding over. And we're seeing lots of legislation of morality based on a very narrow sect of Christianity. Right, right. It does seem for all of the things that our government should be involved in, has to be involved in, is involved in, of running the business of our state, trying to, you know, legislate morality should be a very low priority. But when you look at it as a, I don't know, percentage of the volume of bills filed or the amount of time spent by the legislature and by all of us as a community trying to push back on this, mm-hmm. it definitely feels like a out disproportionate amount of energy is spent on the morality stuff. Well, and think about the the tax dollars that have gone to the lawsuits yeah. that come as a result of what I believe is pandering. Right. Right. Well, Shannon, as we kind of wrap up for today, this has been great. Thank you. Please come back. I'm sure you and I Anytime. can talk for hours yeah. about this. We'll do an episode about the Church of England sometime to really entertain oh, our guests. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll talk tutors all day long. Oh, make sure Scott is here for that. He, <laughs> will, he will love that. Um, let's. I, so the uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, the, the governor has his annual prayer breakfast as he does he every does. year. And um, OFN is hosting kind of a companion event that is separate. (laughs) I love how you put that, a companion event. Yes, and it's not just OFN. Um, We are doing this in a collaborative of a great many number of organizations. So uh, it's not just our event. It belongs to a whole host of organizations. You can see the logo on our website at okfaith.org backslash lunch. So on February 20th, we are co-hosting the Interfaith Impact Lunch, and it will consist of prayers from interfaith leaders. It will consist of a panel discussion about the separation of church and state, why it's important, why we need to care about it, especially at this point in our history. And then we're going to have opportunity for some collective action around the issue. So it's going to be a great event. Heads up, though, almost half the room is filled. So tickets are only $10 and the proceeds are going to the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma. So it's a cheap lunch. You can't get lunch for 10 bucks very many places. Very exciting. I'm going to register right now. You better register now. (laughs) Since we're a co-host, I probably should do it. Yes. (laughs) Let's fix this as a co-host. It's February 20th, 1130 to 1 p.m. at the First Americans Museum. That'll be so exciting. That's a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday. That'll be excellent. Um, So okfaith.org. Backslash lunch. I like it. I love a simple URL. Like Gotta that. have a simple URL. Yeah, that's that's it. You can go to letsfixthis.org slash vote for the same reason, right? Like, that's right. That's it. 
Come right. have lunch with us. Yes. Come have lunch. Let's talk some more about this issue. Yeah, you should. That's a heck of a price. $10 if you want to come. 25 if you want to sponsor somebody else. Um, even nicer. That helps. And again, all the proceeds go to the Regional Food Bank. That's right. You can't argue with this. Absolutely win, not. Win, win, win. Win, win, win. Reverend Dr. Shannon Fleck, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Andy. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Uh, next week, we'll be joined by Dr. James Davenport, uh, who I think is the chair of the political science department in Rose State College. We'll be talking about his life, his experience out there in education, and we'll be talking about uh, the governor's State of the State address, which will be delivered next Monday. Uh, that'll be a hoot. Dr. Dr. Davenport, I believe, is a libertarian. I am not. I can't wait to hear his take on this Uh, and more. So listeners, thanks for being here. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. See you next week.